Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session, and instructions will follow at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. And as a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. At this time, I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Thank you, Mary, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect workshop, the ninth annual Cancer Survivorship Series, Living With, Through, and Beyond Cancer. And this is part one of a four-part series, and today's topic is Chemo Brain, the Impact of Cancer Treatments on Memory, Thinking, and Attention. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care, the National Cancer Institute, Live Strong, the American Cancer Society, Intercultural Cancer Council, Living Beyond Breast Cancer, and the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship. And I have to say it's because of this enormous collaboration that we've been able to reach so many of you on the call today. This is our largest survivorship program that we have ever offered, and it's a credit to each of you. We have on the call today over 3,218 people, so there are over 3,200 people on this call today. So although you can't see each other or feel each other, know that you're currently on this call. And you come from all over the United States. You come from all different regions and states of this country. And we also have international participants from Australia, Brazil, Canada, India, the Netherlands, Nigeria, the Philippines, Turkey, Venezuela, the Virgin Islands, United Arab Emirates. So you really come from all over the world. And it's really a credit to you that you have chosen to spend the next hour with us. This is a very important topic, hemobrain. It's one that is one that is very important in the survivorship community, and you're going to hear from our experts. I would like to turn your attention for a moment to the materials that you received, the packets that you received, the information you received. In those packets is information that uh, an outline of what our speakers are going to cover, and there also is information about all the different collaborating organizations with their websites and toll-free numbers for you to access as well. And there is an evaluation form, and I want to ask all of you to take a moment at the end of today's program and complete that evaluation form. When you think about it, who but each of you can best tell us the topics that you want us to do going forward? Indeed, the topics for this entire series were determined by your evaluations, by what you told us you wanted us to do. And this was the topic that, hands down, was the most popular that you all requested. Now, this program is made possible by support from the National Cancer Institute and Live Strong. And it really is my pleasure to introduce my co-moderator for today's program, Dr. Catherine Alfano. Dr. Alfano is Program Director and Behavioral Scientist, Office of Cancer Survivorship, Division of Cancer Control and Population Sciences, National Cancer Institute, National Institutes of Health. And Dr. Alfano is really going to set the context for today's program in terms of survivorship issues. And I'm going to turn the program over to Dr. Alfano. Thank you, Carolyn. And let me add my welcome to our invited speakers and to all of you listeners who have joined us for today's workshop. I am truly honored to be able to co-host this ninth annual Cancer Survivorship Teleconference Series that focuses on the issues faced by survivors and their loved ones after treatment ends. On behalf of the National Cancer Institute, which is represented by my office, the Office of Cancer Survivorship, and by the Office of Communications and Education, we are pleased to serve once again as an organizational partner and a co-funder of this program. 
The National Cancer Institute established the Office of Cancer Survivorship in 1996 in direct response to the articulate and compelling demand by cancer survivors and the advocacy community to improve the length and the quality of survival for all of those living with a history of cancer, which is currently estimated to be over 12 million people in the United States alone. One of the ways that the office achieves its mission is by participating in the development of educational materials and outreach activities, such as this teleconference series, that are designed to equip cancer survivors and their caregivers with the information that they need to achieve optimal health and well-being after cancer. The number of participants in this survivorship series and the diversity of countries that you represent have grown over the years. Along with our program partners, we're deeply gratified by this response. At the same time, though, we recognize that the popularity of this series is a testament to the fact that for many cancer survivors, caregivers, and families, even though cancer treatment is over, the cancer experience is not. Today's topic focuses on the impact of cancer treatment on memory, thinking, and attention. We chose this topic because survivors, caregivers, and family members told us that these issues are problematic for survivors as they transition from treatment to recovery. The research devoted to this topic has increased significantly over the last 10 years. We are now better able to identify changes in memory concentration and attention after treatment and to understand why they happen. I am very pleased to have three outstanding national experts to address this important topic today. We hope that after today's teleconference, you will have some practical tips for managing these problems and communicating about them with your healthcare team. Again, I am delighted to be co-hosting this workshop with my colleague, Dr. Carolyn Messner, and I will now turn the program over to her. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Alfano, for just setting the really context for today's program and in terms of the issues that we're going to be discussing, and also for the support, for your enormous support and championship of this program and that of NCI supporting this program as well. Thank you. And as Dr. Alfano said, we have wonderful speakers today, and our first speaker is Dr. Lillian Nail. Dr. Nail is going to provide the survivor perspective, and she is the Rawlinson Distinguished Professor of Nursing, Senior Scientist, School of Nursing, Oregon Health and Science University. And I'm going to turn the program over to Dr. Nail, who's really going to give you the survivor perspective. Dr. Nail? Thank you, Carolyn. It's a pleasure to be here today and to have gotten the news earlier from Carolyn about how many people are interested in this program. This was a topic that uh, in the 70s and early 80s we didn't really talk about very much, and that's changed, and a lot of people have been asking questions about it. I'm a four-time cancer survivor, and I have experienced many of the things that uh, it's likely that some of you have experienced along the way in some of my treatments. And I was specifically asked to talk about what the survivor perspective is on that. And I think it starts with it's puzzling because you're not really sure what's happening at first. Uh, for me, the changes took a variety of different forms, one of which was that I lost my innate ability to find my way. I was one of those people who always knew where I was and didn't really need a map and would be able to uh, find my way to a new location without thinking about it a lot. And I remember the day that that sort of blinked out for me, 
and I was driving and had exactly no idea where uh, my target was anymore. Now, for me, solving that problem uh, was a multiple uh, target approach. One, I bought a GPS. Second, I'm very deliberate about noting landmarks. And third, I always map everything out ahead of time so that I'm really familiar with it in case the GPS uh, fails, which does happen occasionally. The second thing I noticed was that my short-term memory was not as good as it had been before. And this was most severe during and immediately following treatment, and it gradually got somewhat better, but I don't feel like it's uh, back to where it was before I ever got cancer chemotherapy. And one of the ways that I compensated for this initially was writing notes on the post-it note paper and sticking them on the dashboard of my car so I knew where I was supposed to be when. And this was working for me really well until we got into the colder weather and I turned on the defroster and then the little pieces of paper blew all over the car and I had no idea what my schedule and my tasks for the day looked like. So I switched to using, you know, the early form of the personal digital assistant and uh, now I have everything, the iPad, the uh, smartphone, you name it, I have it, and I use all of them as a backup to remind me of things that I need to do. And it's basically the list-keeping function that I use. Another thing that was a, an issue for me was concentration. Uh, as a child, I always had the ability to concentrate intently on something and work quickly during that period of intense concentration and end up with pretty good results. As a doctoral student, that turned into the ability of to um, do long stretches of work with very little sleep and still have high-quality product. And then after um, the first time I had cancer chemotherapy, the long stretches were much shorter. I know that I'm much more easily distracted, so I have to plan the schedule for my work differently. Often in meetings, I will avoid sitting facing a window if there's anything distracting happening outside because I know that if I watch out the window, I'm going to lose track of where we are in the meeting, and it's the same thing with glass-walled conference rooms and all sorts of similar situations like that. I do work on things that help me practice my concentration, so I'll pick up a new computer game, um, a particularly complex mystery book, so that I keep my mind actively working on things where I do have to concentrate. And I also um, engage in some sport activity that requires concentration to keep time with everybody else. And it's a situation where I really have to clear extraneous information out of my head and really pay attention to the assigned task and get it exactly right. And I get very specific feedback, otherwise known as the coach yelling, if I don't um, pay attention. So it lets me know how I'm doing at it. So those are the three areas where I think a lot of 
the people in our studies have told us they've had trouble. That's memory, concentration, and sort of a problem-solving thinking. Um, I put that under the category of finding my way, but that has a variety of different elements in it as well. The good news out of our studies has always been that most people feel like they are doing better as time progresses, and many of them tell us, however, that they're not sure if their memory got better or they got better at keeping lists and reminders to compensate for problems with their memory, which of course is a, another problem for research to work on. Some other good news is that there are more investigators working on this question now and moving the science to really looking at what can we do to help people who are having this problem really promote their recovery from it. And Carolyn, I'll turn it back to you. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Nail. Wonderful overview in terms of the survivor perspective, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you, and thank you for the tips and the issues that you raised. Our next speaker is Dr. Tim Alice, and Dr. Alice is member, Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, Director, Neurocognitive Research Laboratory, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And he's going to address an overview of chemobrain, the cognitive abilities affected, and assessment of memory and thinking changes, and he is going to discuss neuropsychological testing. Dr. Alice? Okay, thank you for that introduction, and uh, thank you for the opportunity to uh, uh, present for, uh, today. Um, just to, to start with, uh, you know, just to kind of echo what Dr. Uh, Nail said, I, I mean, really, this is an area that, that was really brought to the, the the clinical and scientific world by cancer survivors. I mean, when when she says that we didn't talk about it much in the 70s and 80s, that that was the the, the medical community didn't talk about it. But if you look at uh, various sources of literature, you can find that that people who were cancer survivors are actually talking about it for for many many years. And it's really only been over the last 10 years or so that it's kind of come to the the the, the uh, really the, wor the the recognition of the scientific world and it's gotten more uh, attention uh, clinically as well. Um, also, just want to make a uh, a bit of a comment to start with on on the title. I mean, we have sort of two parts to it. It's called it starts off chemo brain and then the impact of cancer treatments. And one of the uh, kind of historical perspectives is m many of us thought that it was really chemotherapy that was uh, the major contributor to some of the cognitive changes post-treatment. However, I think the second part of, our, uh, of the title is actually more accurate, cancer treatments, because it, it is looking like there are a, a, a variety of aspects of uh, cancer and cancer treatments that may influence cognitive functioning. So to give an example, I mean, chemotherapy probably is a, a contributor, but um, we also are beginning to learn that various forms of uh, treatments that impact uh, estrogen in women and testosterone in men, which are important in the maintenance of memory functioning, may be also important in post-treatment cognitive changes. So uh, treatments like tamoxifen or aromatase inhibitors for breast cancer survivors or hormone ablation treatments for men with prostate cancer may also impact on cognitive functioning. Um, there also may be a sort of a direct effect of chemotherapy, 
but in women who are in their 40s, who are uh, premenopausal, who get chemotherapy, they may be thrown into an abrupt and permanent menopause, which also influences estrogen levels. So there, it's really a very complex uh, picture, and some of you on the phone may be uh, experiencing some of these cognitive changes, but saying to yourself, I never actually had chemotherapy. Well, that may be because there are other aspects of your treatment that have influenced your cognitive functioning. So, again, to, to flesh out a bit on what Dr. Dr. Nail uh, already described, so what are the, the cognitive areas that are, are most frequently affected? Uh, as was already said, memory and concentration are very uh, common uh, uh, reports. People often will will tell us that they have problems with word finding, so they'll be in the middle of a sentence and they just can't think of the right word, or sometimes they'll substitute a word that sounds like the right word, so, uh, so that you can have that kind of uh, cognitive problem, or they, there's a difficulty in terms of uh, train of thought, they lose their train of thought. Another area of you know, neuropsychologists will call executive functioning. For, for most people, it's more multitasking, so the ability to try to do multiple things at one time and do part of one and then put that down and go and do part of another thing and then come back and not lose your place on the, on the other activity. So many of our survivors will tell us that if they're either at home or in their office, they have one thing to do, uh, there are no interruptions, their cognitive functioning is fine, but when there are multiple tasks, multiple deadlines, interruptions, uh, that's when some of the problems with uh, memory and concentration uh, and attention uh, really begin to, to, to show up. Um, there, uh, some people tell us that there are difficulties with uh, learning new material or reading comprehension, and it's not so much that people can't learn uh, new material, but they'll tell us that uh, in the past they used to be able to read something once and understand it. Now they need to read it three or four times before it really, uh, really sticks. Um, some people tell us uh, they have difficulty working with numbers, and probably one of the most common uh, reports I hear is that I just can't do the tip in a restaurant in my head anymore. I either have to ask somebody else to do it or I have to use a calculator um, uh, or something along those lines. Now, I often describe these as relatively subtle changes uh, in the sense that they're often not necessarily obvious to others uh, except uh, people very close to us um, and subtle, you know, perhaps in contrast to someone with Alzheimer's disease. But that doesn't mean that they're not uh, important to the individual and may really influence their ability to, to function either at work or at home or in hobbies and may negatively impact quality of life. Um, in terms of sort of the pattern of these cognitive problems, very often during when people are in the middle of chemotherapy, they will report cognitive changes. And there are a number of reasons for that. You don't feel well. You're anemic, uh, you're nauseous, you're taking medications that are sedating, you're fatigued. So there are really a lot of reasons why almost everyone has a certain amount of problems with memory and concentration. But frequently, many people will say after the cessation of chemotherapy, they gradually improve in their cognitive functioning. Now, 
by gradual, I mean over 6 to 8 to 12 months sometimes. And for many people, they will recover to 100%. And they'll say a year after their treatment, they feel like they're, they have no problems with memory or attention or concentration. But there seems to be a subgroup of people who hit a plateau, and they say, I recovered 70 or 80%, but then I, I stopped. And then and it hasn't improved uh, since then. And depending on the kind of treatment and their whole variety of variables that go into this, but it's probably in the 20 to 30% range of, of people who have that those longer-term cognitive changes. Um, it's complicated to understand because people will tell you they have good days and bad days. Some days they feel fine, and some days they feel like their cognitive functioning is much worse. For others, it really depends on, on their life demand. So if one is already retired uh, and has a more flexible schedule, uh, accommodating to some of the cognitive changes may be much easier, whereas if you're uh, working at a high-stress job um, or uh, and have children and you know need to multitasking is sort of the the name of the game. One maybe may have uh, many more difficulties. Um, it's also important to recognize that there are a number of other factors that could be contributing to cognitive problems. So there. Are, post treatment, many cancer survivors report fatigue or sleep problems like insomnia. Um, for some reason, it appears that they're at higher risk for sleep apnea, which is a, a, a disorder that disrupts sleep. So um, it's important to really look at those factors because there are treatments that may improve both the sleep problem and the cognitive problem. Similarly, depression, anxiety, stress can contribute to cognitive problems, and again, we have effective treatments for those. So it's important to look at you know, a, a broad variety of factors that may influence cognitive functioning because some of, the, some of those other issues may have treatments that improve both that particular problem and cognitive functioning. So in terms of assessing cognitive functioning, obviously we talk to people and get their perception, and we live inside our heads, and we can often tell when our, our cognitive, cognitive functioning has changed in some form or another. But there's also formal neuropsychological testing. And these tests are, uh, you know, they're a series or a battery of tests that really try to assess each component of cognitive functioning. So if you think about memory, we have long-term and short-term memory. We have verbal memory and spatial memory. And so we can go through a series of tests and really look at all a whole variety of domains of cognitive uh, functioning. Um, and these can be very useful in identifying both strengths and weaknesses um, and identifying potential targets for cognitive rehabilitation or strategies for compensation for some of these cognitive difficulties. One of the problems, though, is that most people have not had pretreatment neuropsychological testing, and there's really no reason why most people would have. And so um, I've talked to many people who go to a neuropsychologist, they have their testing, and the neuropsychologist says, well, your, your testing is completely in the normal range. 
uh, and then they're puzzled as how to interpret that. And one of the problems is that someone may well be in the normal range, but prior to their cancer treatment, they may, may have been high normal. Or uh, and so, in fact, there there's a reduction in cognitive functioning, but it's not detectable uh, by the by the test because it, it occurs all after the treatment. So it it gives us a certain amount of information, but it doesn't necessarily um, answer all the questions that uh, that one might have about their their cognitive uh, difficulties. So why don't I stop there and uh, and go on to go on to the next? Well, I want to thank you very much, Dr. Ellis, for just a very informative presentation, lots of information, and I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you. Our next speaker is Dr. Patricia Gans. Dr. Gans is Professor, UCLA Schools of Medicine and Public Health, Division of Cancer Prevention and Control Research, Johnson Comprehensive Cancer Center. And Dr. Gans is going to cover how cognitive changes impact cancer survivors' lives, other factors that affect memory and thinking, communicating with your healthcare team, and practical tips to improve attention, concentration, and memory. It's my pleasure to turn the program over to Dr. Gans. Uh, thank you, Carolyn. It's my pleasure to be here. And I think to some extent I'm going to be able to wrap up and expand upon some of the comments that my colleagues have already mentioned because they've already done a pretty excellent job of uh, describing the waterfront. Um, but it's... it's uh, quite common that we make people who are quite well sick with our treatments, whether they be chemotherapy, radiation, hormonal therapies, new targeted therapies, and so forth. And particularly in the adjuvant-treated treatment setting, where patients have had the tumor removed and there's not much disease apparent, we, we give drugs and, and treatments that lead to toxicities that injure normal tissues, and then there has to be a recovery period. And one way to think about this is if your treatment lasts six to nine months, it may take six to nine months or a year or more to actually gain back your baseline level of function. And this relates to fatigue, um, sleep, uh, and other symptoms that may be brought on by the cancer treatment and making those kinds of adjustments. Now, one of the challenges is that during treatment, um, you may have taken some time off from work or you may have had a modified schedule, but all of a sudden when treatment ends, everybody expects things to be back to normal. And we know from lots of studies that we've done with survivors that it takes this much longer period of time to recover when you may not actually be receiving active cancer treatment, but the after effects of cancer are working their way out of your body. In addition, you're learning ways to cope with this new normal. And one of the big things that actually occurs during this time as well is the psychosocial impact of the cancer. That is, realizing that even though you've gone through all this treatment, that there's still a possibility that the cancer may recur in the future. You may still be on some kind of maintenance therapy. And the fears and the anxiety and the various moods that you may have during this time may be a problem that you need help with. And they may be interfering, actually, with how you are able to think clearly and function. So as Dr. Aulis and um, Dr. Neal mentioned, having anxiety and distress that's unmanaged 
particularly as you're recovering from your cancer treatment, may make it difficult for you to concentrate on everyday activities and may provide a distraction that limits your ability to remember, to uh, organize your thoughts, and to navigate. Um, now, people like Dr. Nail who are so high-functioning uh, often find this very distressing because they've put um, high demands on themselves, they have very high expectations, and my experience is that these are the people who are most frustrated by the changes that occur after cancer treatment. They just expect everything to be back to normal, and when they can't quite do everything in exactly the same speed or multitasking, it's very difficult for them. So to some extent, it's important to be patient and realize that many of the after effects of cancer take months uh, and sometimes several years to completely resolve. So that's important. It's also important to take care of yourself in the mental and the physical activities. And a lot of research has shown that having some form of regular physical activity is very important both for management of fatigue, cognitive function, and sleep. So again, resuming normal physical activities and building this into your recovery plan may have multiple effects, including improving your cognitive function. The other uh, issues that have also been um, uh, covered by my colleagues really uh, talk about um, things that you can actually do to manage your daily activities that may help you in terms of your uh, cognitive function. That is limiting distractions uh, when you're trying to work, don't have music playing, uh, you know, close the door if there's noise out in the hall. Uh, make it possible for yourself to have the environment that allows you to concentrate. It's also very important that if you're getting fatigued and tired doing whatever you're doing to take breaks, get up and walk around and then come back. Um, it's important to organize your schedule so you don't have a lot of demands placed on yourself, so particularly when you're recovering from treatment over those first six to nine months to make sure that you can get the things done that you want to do. And um, again, uh, telling your family uh, when you need help with things, organizing meals and all sorts of other things that may be difficult for you to do when you're recovering, they need to know that even though the treatments may be over, you're still in a recovery um, pattern. Um, the other thing is that I think is very important is you need to communicate with your healthcare team and let them know that you're having difficulties. Um, in particular, uh, the things that we've talked about that may be amenable uh, to direct management would be anxiety, depression, problems with sleep, um, menopausal symptoms, and again, to the extent that your medical team can help you get these symptoms under control, they're likely to improve your ability to concentrate and um, use your uh, mental capacities as best as possible. If, though, over uh, several months to years' time, um, you just don't see any resolution of your difficulties uh, with memory and concentration and you haven't been able to problem solve this yourself, um, suggest to your healthcare team that you would like a neuropsychological assessment. Um, there are many um, centers around the country where there's an interest in this problem. It's, it's an important late effect of cancer treatment. 
and that getting an assessment to determine what your strengths and weakness are, weaknesses are in terms of neuro neuropsychological functioning, as well as getting very specific recommendations from the professional who does your testing about things you can do to improve in areas where you're having difficulty um, may be very helpful in your recovery. So not everybody needs this kind of uh, testing, and we don't need to jump the gun, because as we've all said, it takes some time to recover after treatment. Um, but but if you do still have persistent problems, getting this kind of professional advice and expertise may be very helpful to you. So I think I'll end there, and I guess we'll have time for questions. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Gans. Just a very uh, beautiful presentation, and also um, thank you for just um, pulling it all together. Now, we do have time for questions. And I want to thank our speakers because we now have lots of time for questions. And I, I do want to say, just going into our question and answer period, that there are so many of you on the call that we will most likely not be able to take everyone's question. So please know that you can call Cancer Care with your questions at the end of the call, 1-800-813-HOPE, um, or you can actually call um, all the other numbers that you um, have in your materials for all the other organizations, and I'll say more about that as we conclude. So. We're going to start by taking questions, as many as we can, but do not feel that if we don't get to your question that you then can't reach us. We will remind you again about how to, to get your questions asked if you don't get to ask them on the live program. And I'm going to ask Mary to explain to everybody how to queue up for question. And Mary, would you bring all of our speakers, Dr. Alfano, Dr. Nail, Dr. Alice, and Dr. Gans on board so we can all be here to take everyone's questions. Mary? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Our first question comes from Allison S. Yes, we'd like to find out what are the uh, effects of long-term chemo maintenance treatment such as a LIMTA? Thank you for that question. Um, Dr. Gans, could you address that question? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I would be uh, incorrect if I even tried to answer that question. We are in the unfortunate situation where we don't have a one-to-one -one correlation between specific drugs and this particular late effect. Unfortunately, you need to do this within the context of a clinical trial where patients are randomly given one drug or another, and then you can see if there's a, a stronger effect with one versus the other. And I have not heard anything specific about this. Perhaps Dr. Aulis knows something. Um, no, I haven't heard uh, anything or I haven't seen any uh, studies looking at that particular issue. And I think that's a, you know, it's, it's sort of a, brings us to a more general point that we really don't know which chemotherapy agents are most responsible for the cognitive difficulties. Uh, and in part, that's because they're often given in, in, in combination, so it's very difficult to sort of to, to pick, pick, the, pick apart the specific effects. That's an excellent point, and I actually want to thank Allison's group for asking that question. Um, they're always on our calls, and it's an excellent question. We'll probably come back to it throughout the call. It's an important one, um, and it's obviously an emerging one, and I think that um, I think what Dr. Gans has said, there is research going on. And so please go back and to your healthcare team and keep asking those questions, and you'll keep asking the questions on these programs, and hopefully one day we'll be able to be that specific. Thank you. Our next question, please. Our next question comes from Lori S. 
Um, hi, I wanted to know if there were any studies that connect um, cancer treatment, chemo brain type issues, to long-term effects like dementia and Alzheimer's. Well, Laura, thank you for that question. Uh, that's probably a question that many people wonder about or worry about. I'm going to ask um, Ashley Oliver, I speak with, to address that one. That's uh, kind of uh, Dr. Alice. Do you want to start with that? Sure. Um, I, I get that question um, uh, frequently. And, again, unfortunately, the answer is that we don't really, uh, we don't really know uh, whether uh, there's, you know, an, an increased risk. Uh, there have been a few studies, but they're not very well done, and the results have been very mixed. So that's certainly uh, an important uh, question for for future uh, future study. And Dr. Gans, I just this is Dr. Gans. I just wanted to say that to some extent, we think that people come to their cancer diagnosis with various predispositions. They have genetic predispositions. They may have past life exposures. And all of these things may have led to injuries to the brain or make people more susceptible to certain kinds of late effects from cancer treatment. So that even though we may treat 100 people with exactly the same treatment regimen, only a small number of people may, in fact, experience a late effect or a serious problem. And uh, because up until recently, we haven't had as many adult survivors of cancer and as many living so long with these kinds of problems, we haven't been able to really understand how much was related to that person having, say, a family history of early onset dementia versus, you know, just getting exposed to the drugs. And I think as we begin to study larger groups of people over time and can perhaps sort out who gets Alzheimer's or dementia in the general population, we can then be able to say, well, did chemotherapy or radiation or some other cancer treatment add to that risk? And Dr. Nail or Dr. Afana, do you wish to add anything further? Yeah, this is Lillian Nail. Uh, I think there's, as Dr. Gans said, a a wonderful opportunity here to bring some different areas of the science together where people have been looking at predisposition and really in a situation where we have multiple treatment options available, which certainly isn't all cancers, but multiple options that are equally effective, we may in the future be able to identify people who should get one of those and not the other to help preserve some area of functioning or prevent a problem later on. But we're not there yet. There is, however, a lot of interest in it now and a lot of investigators who are really thinking about these questions very differently from the way they used to. I would echo that. This is Catherine Alfano. You know, here at the National Cancer Institute, we, we fund a lot of this research, and I'm happy to say that I see a lot of it heading toward this idea that Dr. Gans brought up of individual differences, and, you know, that could be genetic differences, that could be lifestyle differences, or some kind of history that you bring into uh, your cancer diagnosis. And so a lot more of the research is really looking at the 
at those interactions between the medications that you get and what you come in with. And I think that that's going to help better target treatments and, and also better understand who's at risk for these problems. Well, thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Our next question, please. Our next question comes from David H. Yes. Hi. Um, I, I have uh, what may seem like a uh, rhetorical question, but uh, as someone who previously, prior to my diagnosis, had been uh, um, diagnosed as with ADHD, bipolar, and exec specifically executive function disorders, um, how do I separate or distinguish between the chemo brain effects and what I had before? David, that's an excellent – I have to say, this is a magnificent audience. I have to say you're just amazing, and that's an excellent question. I'm going to ask Dr. Alice to address that question. Right. So that that that's, uh, that is is a great question, and I think that it, it relates to, uh, again, sort of what, what Dr. Gans was saying before, that we – we all have, uh, you know, sort of different strengths and weaknesses, different uh, predispositions, different uh, environmental exposures, et cetera, that uh, before our diagnosis. And then uh, after treatment, it's, we're sort of left with, well, how much of this is, is uh, really what I was coping with before versus is there, is there something new? Um, how much of this is that I'm, I'm getting older? I mean, a part of the, you know, is a, you know, one of the things that happens, the longer-term survivor you are, the longer you're, uh, the older you get, and there are certainly cognitive changes associated with aging. So I think that it's, it's important to, um, and we have a tendency to, uh, to, to sort of link specific problems with specific uh, outcomes and I think it's it's important to take a, a broader view to try to un, to really try to sort through is this really qualitatively or quantitatively different than I was before or are these sort of the same problems that I was experiencing in the past Excellent. Thank you, and David, what's incredible is that you you can actually work with your with the team that was treating you before. You have an awareness um, that you um, had um, some attention issues before, and now you can kind of work with your team. At least you're aware of that. That's that's an amazing awareness. So that, thank you for your question, and I hope it's your question helps other people to think of um, issues like that. Thank you. Our next question, please. Our next question comes from Melissa S. Hi. Yes. Um, I'm wondering Hi. if the the when you're on the drug tamoxifen and you take it for five years, if uh, after you've taken it for five years, is there also that correlation where as, as long as you're in the, the length of time you're in treatment, is the length of time you recover, or is there something shorter in that transition? Uh, Thank this you, is Dr. Gann. Question and Dr. Yeah. Gann. Yes, I'm happy to take that. Uh, it really depends on if you're having any symptoms. Tamoxifen uh, gets out of your body within about four to six weeks after stopping it. And um, while we don't know exactly how and why it may contribute to some cognitive complaints, I've had patients who I've given them a drug holiday or I've taken them off the medication. And um, often the 
complaints that they have, which they think they're attributing to the tamoxifen, may actually have been related to the prior chemotherapy and going into premature menopause. So even when stopping the tamoxifen, there may or may not be any change in how they're doing. So I wouldn't expect a five-year, you know, recovery period from that. You you would either be back to where you were before, or you may still have some residua from the original treatment. So again, it's very, very complicated because younger women often will get chemotherapy, they go into menopause, then they get put on tamoxifen. The tamoxifen make make their menopausal symptoms a lot worse, uh, make sleep disrupted, and so forth. Certainly those vasomotor symptoms are going to get better when you stop the tamoxifen, and as I mentioned, they'll probably be better over the short, short, you know, several months after treatment ends. So if they're contributing at all to cognitive complaints, uh, those will go away pretty promptly. So don't worry about having to wait five years for that to happen. Excellent. Thank you very much. Our next question, please. Our next question comes from Stephanie Kay. Uh, yes, hello. I want to thank you so much for this wonderful seminar. I was diagnosed with cognitive impairments uh, by the neurologist short-term memory losses, and my issue is I'd like to know about long-term memory functioning. No, I haven't, heard, I haven't heard anybody talk about your long-term memory. Is it affected? And if it is, does that get better? Um, I know you were saying it's difficult to say, but what about the long-term memory? Well, thank you for that question, Stephanie. And Dr. Alice, could you address that, please? Sure. For, for most people, the difficulties are more in the, short, the realm of short-term memory and, and are the uh, long-term memory tends not to be affected as much, and so people are often able to remember very well uh, uh, old memories like you know, teachers in, in high school and uh, other uh, important events in their lives. Um, so I haven't really seen too much information or too much data on uh, or heard from survivors about uh, changes in, in long-term memory. Thank you. Our, our next question, please. Our next question comes from Holly P. Yes, hello. Um, it sounds like you're talking about chemo brain after treatment. What about those of us who are metastatic and are in treatment all the time? Are we doomed to these constant problems, or would they go away? Oh, Holly, that's a wonderful question. Thank you. I'm going to ask Dr. Gans if she would address that question, please. If one is not having cognitive complaints, then um, one would not expect them to necessarily emerge with treatment. But patients who are on therapy living with cancer as a chronic disease are often getting pre-medications that may interfere with their cognitive function, you know, drugs like Ativan that are frequently given uh, with chemotherapy treatments. Um, and just the stress and anxiety of being on treatments chronically or having the cancer requiring ongoing treatment can contribute to being um, fatigued and also having cognitive complaints. So again, I want to erase the thought that everyone who gets chemotherapy is going to have cognitive complaints. That is not the case. But often, because of uncontrolled pain, fatigue, anxiety, um, difficulty sleeping, which may be part of living with cancer as a chronic disease, um, may contribute 
to not being as sharp as, as, as you would like to be. So again, we treat literally hundreds and thousands of patients, and they have no problems with chemotherapy. So that's not a, 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 the, the necessary thing to expect. But if you're having difficulties, it could be caused in some respects by the chemotherapy treatment. But the other things that I've mentioned um, are also very important to try and get under control. So may I ask then, I'm going to, um, Holly, I'm going to ask an additional question to this for our speakers in terms of that, the concept of a differential diagnosis. How do you um, sort of um, tease out those factors or and then begin to address the other factors that might really be contributing to um, people's um, concerns and complaints? And I know, Dr. Gans, you're a master at this. So, I mean, what might um, be um, involved so people on the phone could know what to perhaps ask of their healthcare team work with their healthcare team in, in getting those things looked at. But what I what I got from the speaker's question was that is it necessary that I'm gonna have this if I have to be on treatment and I wanted to eliminate that particular belief. But if you are having troubles concentrating and taking care of things while you're undergoing therapy on an ongoing basis, and we have many survivors uh, with breast and with colon and with uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma who are on intermittent therapies over many, many years, um, Again, it's better to kind of focus on things that can be fixed and improved in terms of symptom management, and that, again, would be management, effective management of pain, effective management of sleep, effective management of fatigue, because if these are uncontrolled, um, then they may lead to distractions and concerns that uh, interfere with uh, concentration and thinking. So again, making sure that your physician and provider team, it could be nurses as well as palliative care specialists, are really not just focusing on treating the cancer, but treating the symptoms that you're experiencing along with the cancer treatment. Excellent, thank you very much. Our next question, please, thank you. Our next question comes from Allison H. Hi, um, with chemo brain symptoms and the compensatory strategies that are often taught to make up for the inadequacies, um, are there any other um, research-based effective treatments um, such as neurofeedback? Um, what is the, the research in the area of those kinds of uh, treatments? There are people who are testing that, um, you know, some cognitive training um, and computerized programs and so forth. There are also people who are testing the drug modafinil, uh, which has been used for narcolepsy. And again, I, I don't think the, the story is conclusive on that, whether it's helpful. Um, but um, there is a lot of research going on. Um, but I do think it's really, really important before we put somebody on a drug or use some of these other therapeutic strategies is that they, we make sure that they're not depressed, that they're not sleep deprived, and they're not anxious because, again, um, those kinds of strategies may not help if it isn't just a pure um, mental uh, component that we're dealing with. And Dr. Nail, would you comment on just the, mm -hmm. the work that's being done in terms of uh, clinical trial research and, and um, um, in this area? Uh, certainly, there are some very interesting um, initiatives and behavior, and the, the earliest um, work in 
sort of retraining and really intensive remediation was uh, done with children. Bob Butler, who's at Oregon Health and Science University, um, did one of those earliest um, intervention studies to really help children following treatment for acute leukemia, and the children were having a lot of difficulty in school, and he worked on a very extensive remediation and skills training program so that those children would learn how to study. And essentially, that is another compensatory strategy, and the work on adults in terms of behavioral interventions, a lot of it has grown out of that same idea of helping people understand what the problem is, understanding the pattern of the problem, being able to self-monitor so that they can tell how they're doing, and having strategies they can use to either prepare for or deal with specific situations. So it, it follows those same lines, and we're just at the point now, I think, where people are starting to do the studies with adults. And um, do our speakers want to comment on just how people can find information out about all the different trials and studies that are going on right now? So, of course, this is Catherine Alfano at the National Cancer Institute. So the clinical trials are listed on clinicaltrials.gov on, on, on the National Cancer Institute's website as well. Um, and one other one that I just wanted to mention while, while I've got the phone here is that some uh, researchers are starting to look at physical activity interventions, too, and to see if maybe uh, increasing your exercise can help with these cognitive problems. Excellent. Thank you. Okay, next question, please. Our next question comes from Meryl S. Yes, hello, and thank you very much. Um, my question is mainly about anger and what part it plays in recovery. Um, this is for uh, family members and for the patient. The patient is an architect used to specific um, roles, uh, cognitive roles that he plays, and due to the ongoing chemotherapy, his anger has increased tenfold. He's aware of this anger, uh, and the part that's most difficult is each, this is a, a delicate subject matter because it's an honest response to the loss he feels. However, many of us, interacting misunderstand the anger and we either avoid or ignore and uh, I believe support requires an understanding of this perceived anger why isn't the patient grateful for the efforts that are being made well that's an excellent you know you're making really an excellent it's an excellent question an excellent point that you're bringing up that indeed um, often uh, a People living with cancer survivors feel angry, and that anger is often expressed at those that care about them and that they love. Those are safe people to express that anger with. We often recommend when those, when people experience that, and when families experience that, that they really um, do uh, seek some support and counseling, even a support group, um, to get some support and just validation for what they're going through. 
And also, um, sometimes when someone's feeling very angry, it's a good idea to let the healthcare team know about that because sometimes there can be other issues occurring for that person that might be the healthcare team might be able to help with. And I'm going to ask just Dr. Gans to comment on just ways that you sometimes evaluate the anger, whether it's coming from just the emotional and social stresses or some physical issues as well. Yeah, so I think while it's important to recognize that this person has a lot of losses and things are out of his control, um, how he's dealing with it may be counterproductive in terms of his support system. And so, again, I think uh, a psychosocial intervention is absolutely critical and um, talking with your healthcare team and getting referred to appropriate help um, is better sooner than later. while, again, these feelings are very, very common, um, uh, a, you know, a high-functioning professional like this needs someone to talk to about it, and often the family is not the, the place where this is best, an independent person who can listen to them and hear their pain and suffering and help them um, develop practical strategies to deal with it. Um, because everyone who has a cancer diagnosis is angry, but how they manage it um, varies, and so getting professional help is very important. That's such an important point. I'm actually, uh, we'll call you after the call, just so we can discuss the resources to get that support and counseling. That's really very important. Um, It is out there for people, and it's really something that we want everyone on the call to be aware of. And I want to thank all of our speakers. You've just been really outstanding, and I want to thank all of you who queued up and asked such amazing questions, really, and really your questions helped everybody else on the call. And I know that there are some of you who didn't get to ask your questions, but you'll be calling Cancer Care at the end of the call. I want to remind you that this is a one-hour education program and that in planning a program like this, we know that you have many needs that go far beyond the scope of one-hour program. Now, this is a four-part series, so I do want to remind all of you that there is a part two to this program on May 10th, and the topic for that is weight changes after cancer treatments. Why is it happening, and what can I do about it? However, I do want to say that I don't want anyone on today's program to leave the program feeling that you're alone. I want you to know that you're now part of a community of support. You have resources and places to call for questions or concerns or for help and for counseling and support. Um, And I do want to say a word about cancer care services. We have a staff of 60 NASA's level trained oncology social workers, and we are here to provide that psychosocial, the emotional, social, and practical help um, to many of you on the call who may be feeling upset and angry and concerned about some of the issues that you're dealing with. So we are available for that. Um, We also offer support groups online and on the telephone, and we also offer practical and financial assistance as well. We do have many of these programs, and you'll all be listening to our next program, I'm sure, but I do want to be sure that you understand that not only is Cancer Care a resource to you, but you have all the resources of all of the different collaborating organizations that we mentioned um, at the beginning of the program, so please take advantage of all of us in moving forward. Now, I also want to remind all of you that we so much depend upon your evaluations to take that moment and complete your evaluations so that we we can best plan our programs for next year. We really, we very much depend on your feedback. So take a moment, complete the evaluations. You can either send them back to us electronically or we did provide you with a, um, you know, envelope, stamped, addressed envelope, postage pay that you can send your evaluations back to us. So I want to thank you all for participating today and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all.
Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This includes a workshop you may disconnect and have a wonderful day.